and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our divided common life and how we can have better conversations across our differences. In this episode, you'll hear an interview with Chinny McDonald. Chinny is the media content and PR lead at Christian Aid, which is a major development agency, and she formerly worked at World Vision and the Evangelical Alliance. She started her career in journalism on the Reading Evening Post and Eyewitness magazine. We spoke about growing up in Lagos, her sacred value of altruism, how she learned to embrace her Nigerian identity, and why it's so difficult to talk about race. I learned a lot, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Ginny, I'm going to start with a really hard question that I ask everyone, and I always feel about, a bit mean about asking, but you've had some warning. So tell me, do you have any understanding of what your sacred value or values might be? I have been absolutely dreading this question because I've listened to every episode of Sacred and think that people come up with really amazing answers and it's really fascinating to hear what other people say. But I've obviously prepared what I want to say, and it's something around kindness and, put simply, not being horrible to people. I think that's what I value. And I think that um, more specifically, kind of taking it a step further, it would be altruism. So that idea that humans are capable of thinking about other people more than they think about themselves. So I think that what I really struggle with in both kind of personal life, family life and the world at large is kind of selfishness or seeing the world um, only from your own perspective or putting yourself above the, the wants and needs of others. And I think sometimes when you ask this question, you talk about, you know, what is the thing that people you would really kind of struggle with or be offended by if someone was to say that you should get rid of that value. And I think um, it's been really interesting over the years thinking about the sense of a kind of altruism. And I've got a book called The Myth of Altruism, which talks about how it's altruism does not exist. It's all about evolution and about furthering your own species, basically. So the kindness is about social bonds and about biology. So it therefore doesn't really exist. Or if you look at kind of more anthropological explorations of the idea of gift exchange. So I give you something, Malinowski and people like that talk about how no gift is ever free of kind of reciprocity. So I only give to you, I only do something kind for you because I'm going to get something back out of it. So I really struggle with those kinds of concepts. So I guess my sacred value is kindness and altruism and believing that those things are possible. It's absolutely fascinating. We had a great session in the Theos team recently when we were talking about theological anthropology. And one of the things that Nick Spencer thinks is defining for a Christian anthropology is gift, is the idea of self-giving and self-giving without the need for return. Not that that defines us or that Christians are any better at it, but that that is something that humans are capable of and that we can develop in ourselves. I want to know if you've had situations where you feel that that value of kindness in you has been put under pressure and particularly where women involved in leadership positions and my sacred value is close-ish to yours and it's about human relationships. Have you been in situations where you felt like the good of the organisation or the good of the mission or just pure pragmatism has been in conflict with that value of kindness and how have you navigated that? I think that in this age of social media and kind of, you know, constant conflict. It's something that I really struggle with, kind of particularly online. So how can I be my kinder self when someone is kind of criticising me? I think in terms of the organisations that I've worked for, I think when those things come into conflict, that's when I think, actually, I can't be part of this anymore because it's such a, such a part of me that I kind of feel um, a sense of 
sense of guest justice and you know that's what we should be about. So it's interesting now working within development and thinking about aid um, as a subject, something that is being threatened in terms of how much we as the UK give to the people who are the poorest in the world. And now the aid kind of narrative has turned more towards that idea of self-interest. So we give to other people, we give to poor people in Africa or Asia or Latin America to serve our own interests as the UK. So we want them to prosper because it's better for us. Whereas actually, I think that we should give because that's the kind and good human thing to do when you see someone else suffering is to is to respond and to give. Now, we're going to wind back a little bit because we try and place our interviewees in a bit of a personal narrative to give a sense of where they're coming from before they ended up being someone in the public conversation, as you are. So tell me a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, what that was like, and particularly if you can think of any formative ideas, whether those are religious and spiritual or political or philosophical that helped make you the woman you are today. Yeah, it's been really interesting kind of thinking back right to the beginning. Um, I was born in Lagos. I think it's the most one of the most populous cities in the world. So I guess life for me began with lots of people around and being part of a Nigerian family and part of the Igbo tribe of Nigeria family, people, whether they are related to you or not, are always around. So that's a kind of formative idea. The idea of relationship and the idea of welcome and um, hospitality have been there since the start. I spoke to my dad actually about this. And he kind of took us back to this idea that when I was growing up or within our family context, there would always be someone who would try to see another person's point of view when we were having kind of, you know, a family disagreement. And that would apparently um, most often be me. So I think those things or that idea of, you know, trying to put myself in another person's shoes have been really formative for me and helped me in, I guess, journalism and theology and trying to think um, or trying to realise that not everyone thinks in the same way as me. I think also education was a real, I guess, sacred value in my formative years. So my grandfather, before he died, said to my mother that, you know, he couldn't leave her wealth or riches, but what he could leave her was a really good education. So reading, discussing. Um, My dad, we used to, we kind of joke about it, but my dad used to read us um, as bedtime stories. He used to read us Julius Caesar. And um, can quite, he can kind of almost recite it from beginning to end. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we grew up hearing, listening to, um, discussing, thinking about literature and theology and arts and all those kinds of fascinating ideas. So, yeah, discussing those even from a young age was part of my childhood. And was there, what was the role of faith or religion? Was there any in the air? There was a lot of it in the air. Um, I guess you could say I grew up in an evangelical home, but it was quite, I guess, cross-denominational or ecumenical in that my mother, my great-grandparents were Anglican priests in Nigeria and lots of my family Anglican on my mother's side, but then my dad's side there, we've got Methodists and we went to Baptist churches and kind of new churches as well. So I haven't kind of been wedded to one particular denomination, but yeah, we went to church every Sunday. Sometimes we went to three different churches on a Sunday. And it was interesting because we would go to the kind of Baptist church in a leafy suburb in the morning. And then at lunchtime, we would help set up a kind of new church in the kind of upper room of somewhere. And then we would go to Kensington Temple, which is this kind of huge evangelical church where we'd get some amazing music. So a church was like a real, a really big part of my childhood. But it's really interesting having gone to study theology at university. I went to study theology at Cambridge, kind of accidentally, um, because I wanted to be a journalist. uh, But I remember 
doing work experience when I was 15 on The Independent and one of the fe- the features editor said to me, if you want to be a journalist, you need to remember that you're black and you're a woman and you're going to need all the help you can get. So just try and go to the best university you can and study anything because it's really the connections that will get you into the media. So I was like, okay, right, I'll study theology and I <laughs> will apply to Cambridge. Strangely got in, um, but then wasn't prepared really for just the level of challenge it would be uh, on my faith, which was kind of right from day one. My goodness. Oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about there. But uh, you've, you've started with being born in Lagos and then we've zoomed to uh, university. So when did what age were you when you moved to the UK? I was four when we moved to London, South East London. And... We'll talk a little bit about that conversation that you had when you were 15, because one of the, you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is our different identities and how those are navigated in our public conversations and how we're dealing with our different identities. But do you remember when you first became aware of race and the fact of coming from a uh, Nigerian family being perhaps not the norm or outside the majority in the UK? Yes. In some ways, I look back on my 34 years and think, oh, I have not experienced any prejudice really compared to lots of other people. But I have experienced real moments of difference and realising that I come from a different place. I look different. I sound different. I eat different food. So I think my first memory of that was being five um, in reception class and uh, everyone around me was white. Um, I think I was, you know, yeah, there was one other black person in the class and our teacher asked us to draw a self-portrait. And I remember drawing my, doing my face and then getting a pink pencil and colouring in my cheeks, a light blue pencil and doing my eyes, a yellow pencil and doing my kind of long straight hair. And someone looked at my portrait and said, that's not you. And I think that was the first moment where I thought, oh yes, that isn't me. I am different. I don't look bad. Therefore, I don't look like any of the Disney princesses. Um, I don't look like most people. And I remember being really disappointed in that. And I think growing up as an immigrant in the UK, the other kind of significant moment was when Stephen Lawrence died um, because he was killed in Elton. We were living in Elton at the time and I was, think I was eight or nine or something at the time. And I remember suddenly being really afraid of people um, kind of walking up and down the high street and you just think, oh, are we living among racists now? And, you know, you can't hide from, you can't hide from it. So just thinking about that, that was a real moment. So there was a real part of me that tried to, at every opportunity, deny that difference. So I would try to conform in every way. So I would um, not want to eat kind of Nigerian food at school. I would want my hair to be long and straight. Um, All those kinds of things that many ethnic minorities who are, you know, growing up in the UK feel. Yes, I really probably denied that part of me. I used to hate going to Nigeria. I used to hate that kind of cultural element until I was at university, actually, when I remember, I think I was 20 or 21 and went, suddenly went back to Nigeria. And I remember when we landed, all of a sudden, as I got off the plane, it suddenly felt like home in a way that it hadn't for most of my life. Um, so I spent quite a few years just trying to get to know my heritage, trying to understand my culture. Um And kind of, yeah, fast forward to now and it feels like this is a real moment of, I guess, reawakening in sense of black identity in that we are now a lot prouder than we used to be. Being an ethnic minority is kind of cool now in a way that it wasn't when I was young and now challenging the kind of prejudice and the racism that we see when we see it. So tell me a bit about why do you think it was that university was the moment for that for you? We've obviously seen in the news recently, David Lammy and others raising the issue, particularly Oxbridge, being pretty monocultural. Was that your experience? Absolutely. It was my experience. 
And I guess the years of trying to conform before that and trying to be like everyone else were suddenly kind of brought into start for you when I was, you know, when you'd be at these grand dinners at um, halls in Cambridge and you'd be sat with academics who would otherize you. They weren't used to seeing black men or women actually at college. And so there was a level of, I guess, ignorance and assumptions about who we were and where we'd come from. So all of a sudden, yeah, I tried to conform, but then realised at that point that I actually couldn't. And therefore, rather than try and run away from, I guess, my race and my heritage just to embrace it. So I know that when I was at university, there were more people with the surname white than there were black students at Cambridge at that time. So I think there were were 10 of us in my year of 3000 or so, you know, two of them were my cousins. So it was kind of a very small number. So yeah, we were, it it was no longer possible to try and conform when other people are um, seeing you as different. So yeah, I guess that's why, that's when it kind of happened. So I'd love to unpack that otherizing word you use because I've been really nervous about doing this podcast with you, partly because you're just super smart and partly because like a lot of the things we talk about on the podcast in terms of our fractious conversations, race is really hard to talk about well and I'm white and I'm coming to slow consciousness of what that means and lots of things that I haven't ever really thought about before I'm beginning to think about and, you know, consider my privileges and uh, trying to educate myself about race. And often the conversation I have in my head when I'm reading something about race is, oh, I'd love to talk to Tinny about that. But what I don't want is for you to feel like you are the kind of smart, kind black friend that everyone goes through this process with because that might just be really tiring and annoying because I'm sure I'm poorly informed and thoughtless at times with it. So how for you is the experience of helping other people come to a better understanding of what race means? And are there days where you're like, that is not all who I am and I do not want to talk about that today? Oh man, this is, yeah, this is really a really difficult question because I kind of sway between, you know, between one and the other. So I want my blackness and my African culture to be celebrated, but I also don't want people to ever notice it or talk about it. So that's really, I can see how that is really difficult for someone who is not black. I also know that there is not one story of blackness. And that's something that I need to realise as well, in that I have massive privilege. Uh, I'm Oxbridge educated. I've got two parents who are successful, who have money, went to really good schools. Um, So I'm really conscious of not trying to speak for people who were a lot less privileged than I am. However, (laughs) on the other hand, realising that whether you are the prime minister or a kind of young black teen growing up in inner city London, you are black. And so therefore there are assumptions that will be made about you. There are stereotypes that people will hold about how you live your life, what you think, how you vote and what you do in your spare time that I am kind of constantly somewhere in the back of my mind trying to dismantle. So there are certain things that I I'm really conscious of not doing. So I try not to be late to to meetings because I don't want people to think, oh, black people are late. Or I try not to, I try not to constantly talk about my African heritage, my Nigerian heritage, because I don't want people to think that that is all that I am and that I'm a one dimensional human being. Everyone is complex. Everyone's lives have texture. um, And we need to realise that um, people aren't 
just made up of the stories that we think they are made up of. And it's been really interesting um, having married uh, a white Yorkshireman in that kind of race issue and those kind of race discussions are really, you know, they're things that we talk about at home now. And it's really interesting now seeing it from his perspective. What is the, if there's one thing or a few things that someone like me who is trying to get their head around race and educate themselves without being annoying or hurtful, is there anything that we should avoid doing or asking or any particular language. I think often in these areas, and it comes up in disability as well. We've talked with a brilliant guy with, uh, called Tom Shakespeare on the podcast, and it comes up a bit in feminism that sometimes I think one of the reasons these debates get really hard is people are nervous about getting it wrong. So they're already in like fight or flight, and then they get defensive and either get angry or just back away. So there's a sort of emotional, intelligent education thing. And I hope this is a safe space where people listening can just listen into different voices and get a bit educated about how to engage with people who are different from them. So what would you want to say to those people who want to better understand the role of race? Okay, so first, the most important thing is just to listen sometimes and not say anything. I think it's really important to just hear what people have to say rather than interjecting or rather than saying, well, this is my experience of the world. Um, Actually, give black people or whoever it is that you're trying to understand just some space to talk about who they are. I'd also say, you know, the big bugbear that I have is when people say that they're colourblind or that they don't see race, that I find ridiculous, first of all, because that's not true. And also slightly offensive because the assumption therefore is that if you saw my race, it would be a negative seeing of that race. So I therefore won't, I will choose not to see it. Um, don't be colorblind. No one's colorblind. Don't say you're colorblind. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I think one of the reasons that people talk about being colorblind is they are unaware of their implicit biases and there's quite a good, you know, body of social scientific literature showing that you're right. None of us are colorblind. We all make assumptions about people, not just about race based on other things. And that's quite a hard thing to come to terms with, isn't it? For all of us that we carry this enormous bundle of prejudices, which in some ways my Christianity helps me with because I'm like, yeah, I'm a big bundle of sin and here are some things I can go do about that and with the help of God. But uh, have you helped people see their implicit biases and what are the most effective way of kind of gently revealing those to people? Yes, it is in, I guess, I'm a real fan of black people having a conversation in front of white people. So black people having a conversation with each other about our experiences in front of um, white people or white audiences. And I've been able to do that in some settings, which I found really useful. It's an amazing thing that I have lots of kind of do-gooding, social justice warrior fighting, feminist friends. But I think for those people, the idea that they are in some way part of this idea of white privilege or this structure of white privilege is crushing. So I can see sometimes, always kind of when I'm talking about these issues, their faces are like, but there's kind of not me, or they want to show how it's not them. But I think everyone has to understand that we are part of the structures of our society. And it's not you personally, but it is potentially your race or the way that um, our societies are run. So you don't have to kind of take it personally. Just think about how you can be a white ally and move forward um, with your black brothers and sisters. So I'm going to use a word that some people on the podcast would be very familiar with and some people will have heard and not really known what it meant, which is intersectionality or um, intersectional feminism. It's usually used in particularly, which is really about this sense that they're kind of multiple injustices are possible. And when you have multiple identities, if we're not aware of the way those are interacting with each other, so you might be disabled and non-white or a woman and black, those it's worth paying close attention to those and not breaking down into two small granular groups or giving any particular group within that privilege. 
forgive me because I know this is all very personal, but I'm really grateful for you kind of graciously and patiently talking to us about it. Um, you said that the person when you were 15 said to me, you're black and a woman, so it's going to be tougher. How do you feel about how we're doing in our public debates about feminism and uh, women in leadership and male violence? Are you hopeful or pessimistic about that? We're doing terribly and it's really depressing. I'm not sure how to fix it. So we all in, I guess, social media forums fall into our silos. So I've got, I'm following my black feminist friends who are constantly angry at white women and white men. And then you've got the predominantly white feminist movement really, really angry at the patriarchy. And there is not much nuance. There is not a lot of grey. And people who suggest that there might be grey, you're good at doing this, are sometimes kind of criticised for that because, you know, either you are 100% feminist and anti-abortion or, you know, either you're with us or you're not. I'm not sure how we fix it. I think that we need people who are prepared to you know, pull out the grey and be prepared for the criticism that comes with that. I'm quite a fragile, you know, people pleasing kind of person. So I find it really difficult to say things that people might, people who I um, admire might be critical of. So it means I'm therefore really guarded in what I say on social media and therefore say what I really think, you know, to my husband. Whereas actually, why don't we just all be a bit more honest and talk about the nuance and talk about the context in which we find ourselves? I am really aware that I, um, in terms of intersectionality, I am able-bodied uh, and middle class. So therefore, there are whole, you know, parts of conversations that I have absolutely no, no you know, right in saying anything in. And I need to really work really hard to think about how a disabled person might feel about X or how someone who has not grown up with the privileges that I have might feel and, and not try to speak for them. So I'm really aware as we're talking that I can think of some people who will find listening to this difficult slash enraging and not because they're bad people. Some of them are uh, people very close to me who are thoughtful and ethical and moral, but have an allergy to anything they perceive as identity politics or trying to sort people into groups or as we've talked about, you know, anything like intersectionality. You know, some people write off those movements for ignorant and bigoted reasons. And some people have a much more thought out hunch that they are not how we contribute to the common good. We've had a lot of people on the podcast question identity politics and I am really torn because I feel like I do want movements that unify and that do reduce the differences between us and put more emphasis on the commonalities between us and our shared humanity. But I'm also very aware that you often, not always, the people critiquing identity politics are those whose identities have been traditionally in the majority, not the minority. And there is a justice claim for some groups that should be heard. So there's a very long-winded way of saying identity politics, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, or in a more nuanced way. Uh, do you share that wrestle and where have you I got think to on it? that it's about where we are in history. I would love to get to a place where identity politics was not a thing in which we could forget our differences and all kind of live together, you know, kumbaya, we're all the same. But the reality is that that is not the situation now. And we need to strive towards making it that way. So, you know, it's all good and well saying that we shouldn't kind of be party to identity politics, but I don't really have a choice in that. Um, I don't have a choice in being a black or being a woman. A lot of my Christian friends who are kind of anti-identity politics would, would like me, hold this idea that God created 
each of us. Um, and he created us with amazingly wonderful diversity. But yet God, uh, in somewhere in the Christian story, there is this idea that despite our differences, that we are all uh, equal. So the differences don't go away. But how do we become equal despite those differences? So I didn't see politics. I can see the problems and I can see how we might need to come together to to kind of break down those barriers that currently exist in the future. So it means that we have to talk about it. Um, I can't pretend that that there is equality of opportunity for women and disabled people and black people right now. There just isn't. So instead of kind of critiquing identity politics, how can you get involved in fixing the problem? Let's talk about Christianity building on that, because you've had various jobs which has involved you engaging with the public conversation from the point of view of trying to bring a faith perspective and interject a positive faith perspective and most recently around uh, development issues. What have you learned? You know, Theos is very interested in how we engage across divides of belief and non-belief and how we take seriously people's faith commitments in our public conversations. What is the biggest lesson you've learned and what motivates you to keep doing it? I think what you what Theos is doing, particularly in that looking at how we engage in public debate is really important for right now. Because what I've realised is that I bring to the conversation lots of baggage or, you know, certain a certain upbringing, a certain faith perspective. And the important thing, the most important thing that I've learned is to try my hardest, even though I fail all the time, to listen to another person's point of view. So constantly I come a across people who who see the world in a totally different way to me. And I default to just stopping the conversation because I suddenly realise, oh, that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. Whereas what I should probably do is try and try to engage more. And I used to work for an evangelical organisation and it was really interesting seeing, you know, from behind the scenes how people view evangelicals in the wider society. They think of evangelicals as weird, as stupid and as ill-informed, as prejudiced, as bigoted. Whereas the people that I worked with were totally not that. So I have experienced, I guess, the kind of first-hand how it is that religious people and particularly evangelicals are spoken about. Now, evangelicals and Christians in general or people of faith even more in general are not stupid. We don't believe in fairies. Um, we are intelligent people um, for the most part. So to kind of dismiss people as you know stupid um, because they believe in God, I think is is dangerous. Um, I think that we should all strive towards a society where... Um, all beliefs are kind of welcomed um, into the conversation. So I love um, doing Thought for the Day, for example, because it is a faith moment, as much as some people would not like it to be, within, you know, uh, the UK's most high-profile news programme. So thinking about what's happening in the world, about current affairs through the lens of faith, because I think that faith does have some really important things to say about what's happening now. Are there things that you would like to say as someone who has sort of professionally, you, you know, you move from being a print journalist into working communications in the faith sector. Is there something that you'd like to say to Christians who are listening to the podcast uh, that what could they do to make your life easier? In, in, anything you'd like them to stop doing and anything that you think is, you know, examples of really great practice or great messages or great ways of engaging that you'd like to encourage more of? Biggest thing that I wish Christians and in particular evangelicals would stop doing is either supporting Trump or in being silent about the Trump administration. So I think for me, 
the past, you know, couple of years have been really difficult in terms of that idea of public debate or faith in the public square, because I think we've been set back quite a long way. I thought we were doing all right. And all of a sudden we're not. So I remember, you know, the morning after Trump was elected, just waking up and almost feeling like I didn't recognise my own family. And that's a really painful thing to go through, realising that the people that I was talking specifically about white evangelicals in the US who voted for him, uh, the majority of them voted for him. These were people that I thought saw the world in a kind of similar-ish way to I did. So for them to, I guess, put their full, the full weight of their support behind someone who I saw as misogynistic, as racist, as poisonous, um, when we're talking about public debate, was really almost, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard and it continues to be hard. So I wish that they would just stop that, really. I remember um, we had a little message on the morning that that happened and I, I, I watched you tweet on Twitter about your grief and then quite a few people of your evangelical friends almost challenge you on it. Do you remember that moment? I do. I think about that moment quite a lot. And I think, yeah, that was that was the moment when I thought, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't recognise my own family. So I think evangelicals uh, and Christians in this country have done so much good um, and they continue to do so much good in, uh, you know, housing the homeless, in feeding the people who are hungry, in taking people out of debt, helping people out, out of debt. We do so many amazing things. So it is so sad when I see a kind of narrative about who we are um, being dominated by ridiculous support for someone who is not kind, who does not see women or black people or Hispanic people or um, all this kind of amazing diversity of, of, of people who I believe God has created and who I believe that evangelicals believe that God has created. Yeah, I find it really difficult that they are. And someone who doesn't really think he needs forgiving for anything, which feels fairly central to me in terms of calling yourself a Christian. Yeah. I think, you know, no one's perfect. Uh, I'm not perfect. Um, even you're not perfect. Um, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, there's something really troubling in that support. Because to me, it comes down to power. And I don't believe that as Christians that that our place in the world is to get as much power as we possibly can. And that kind of fear that comes from the idea of losing power is what's led, what I believe has led to them supporting him. So how do we kind of realise that as Christians, we might lose sometimes and it's okay. We don't have to win. And um, the New Testament is full of, you know, you know, as, as Christians, we're supposed to be kind of outside that kind of power bubble and it's not fun when you're losing or when you don't have any power but actually maybe that's what we're called to do. I want to ask about the emotional intelligence piece there in what you've said because I think a lot about that. You know, what is the psychology that's driving the way our public debates are? What is the psychology that's driving? What is the woundedness, you know, what is the idolatry that's driving the way that we sometimes treat each other? And it feels to me that the genius of something like the civil rights movement is um, King and others were able to see that fear and that woundedness in their opponents, in those who opposed civil rights for black people, and manage that fear and that anger with such a compassionate and deft touch where they did amazing things like role playing in advance to build empathy and you know the 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 the, the not getting defensive the not kicking back the holding their temper that the, the continual preaching about brother you know James Baldwin's another one people that that incredibly high moral call to to see those who hate you as brothers as sisters as equals, obviously drawing very deeply on the New Testament ethic of nonviolence that's informed so many transformative movements 
around the world. And I'm struggling to see that in our current movements. But I know that saying that, you know, it's slightly easier with feminism because I feel like, okay, I'm a woman. I can try and embody that, can try and not paint men as evil. I can try and not, you know, get hateful. I can seek to see us as, you know, all part, all in this together and build bridges of reconciliation and, and honesty and build trust. But with other debates like race and, and others, I don't feel like I have the right to say, I know you're angry, but that anger isn't helping. What you need to do is like emotion coach these people through this in a way that I do with my toddler and that I'm sure you'll end up doing with Keir. So how is it possible to call for that level of emotional intelligence from a purely pragmatic place of this is what works without sounding like you're downgrading people's often completely just pain? Yeah, it's not easy, but I think it, I think the answer is found in what you said about, you know, in the feminism discussion, you are a woman, so you can fully take part in that conversation and you are able to um, speak from your experience of being a woman. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's possible for um, white people to critique how black people should feel about injustice. But I think what we can do is try and raise up those voices from within the black community to to say those things. So how do you um, build those relationships with those people who are the influencers and who can inspire people and who can help them to, I guess, check their emotions um, and kind of work together to improve the situation rather than making worse. Because the more we shout at each other, the the worse it all becomes. I think that in, particularly within um, evangelicalism among um, white people in in the US, I think we're almost at the point where they, none of them can say anything about race because whatever they say will kind of be taken with kind of all the baggage of what's gone before. But I'd really love to just kind of build those relationships with those people and remind them of what Martin Luther King says, which was church is called to be the conscious of the state, not the master or the servant of the state. So how do we not kind of continually grasp for power um, to the detriment of our brothers and sisters who might look a little bit different to us? And um, how do we build those relationships? How do we um, come around the table? How do we share honestly about what we feel, whether that is about our pain, about white privilege and our kind of kind of fractured egos, or whether that is the injustices that the black community faces. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk. Hold up. 